the most pertinent question in the quest series will be what we are discussing today. Is Jesus the only way? And of course, you know that's a rhetoric quest rhetorical question, and the answer is obvious. But how do you grapple with the reality that we live in a post-modern, post-Christian, post-everything pluralistic society? There appear to be many ways that lead to God. And also, there was a time when I grew up in the 80s and when I was in universities, the anti-Christians or people who wanted to challenge Christian faith always used intellectual grounds to say that whether God exists or not, like, you know, that was the, the debate mostly, rational debate. But now if you look at the latest YouTube videos or wherever the debates are happening, the challenge actually shifted from an intellectual ground to a moral ground. Most of the atheists nowadays, they start their argument by saying that, well, okay, let's for the sake of argument, let's say there is a God, but how dare you say that yours is the only God? Now that's shifted to the moral ground. Many, many, many people, you know, the science and faith and all that kind of discussion is kind of getting out of date a little bit. Because I said, like I said, the, the argument shifted from the intellectual ground to moral ground. How can you say that Jesus, who is supposedly a Western, white, blonde hair, blue-eyed person, or the somehow became representative of Western society. So you add all of this bigotry to, uh, I don't know, all of these things to that particular statement that when we say Jesus is the only way. And also as Christians, sometimes we grapple with that too, and I'm pretty sure that most of us, particularly brought up in the evangelical traditions, tradition don't really have a problem believing that Jesus is the only way, but how do we present that in a culture where, because, you know, by virtue of my birth in India, most of my friends are Hindus or Christians, uh, or Hindus and Muslims, and most of them are, to be, to be honest with you, better people than some of the Christians I know. How dare I say that somehow God's revelation that was at a specific time, in a specific point, in the middle of nowhere in Palestine or Israel, and that happened to be the way, and there are people who have never heard of Jesus, who died without ever hearing the Jesus, will all, be, end, up in, will all end up in damnation uh, just because they were not privy to this exclusive truth which is revealed to us anyway. This... This is a challenging question, even for people who believe, right? So I remember around 15 years ago, I dedicated my life to research this topic. Um, I quit my job 
for multiple reasons, but main thing was that I wanted to do some research, research on this, and I, I studied all the world religions, and I you know I make a lot of self-deprecating jokes from this platform, so I hope you won't mind if I brag a little bit, uh, but <laughs> um, I, can sl- I can talk about six major world religions in my sleep. That's how much I have acquainted myself studying it. Nobody is an expert in world religion, by the way. Nobody can fully grasp it. But I've dedicated my life to studying this and to see how Jesus could be presented in a way that is palatable to people of other faith. And that was my main mission. And then also to understand the, the so-called exclusivity of, of my own faith, right? And it all culminated in a little book in my hand, 15 years of my research. Now, I have decided, you know, I had decided to Never to talk about the book I write. And I, you know, many people say, Pastor Matthew, when you, when you, when you quote from your book, and when you say, the, why don't you say this? Why, do, why don't you introduce your book to us? I remember my previous pastor, interim senior pastor, Jeff Madisich, he's a very good friend of mine. He said, Matthew, you should take one day just to talk about your book. The book should be available for people to read. This is an important book. But I always decided that I don't want to talk about, especially I never named the, named the book from, from the pulpit. Because I, I have seen often enough pastors misuse the pulpit as a, as a way to promote their book and the merchandise and whatever that is. So I have, this, uh, I have an issue with that. But today I'm going to do it. I'm not going to promote it because I have around 20 minutes and there is no way I can encapsulate my 15 years of research in 20 minutes. So I'm going to ha- leave you hanging, okay? You are going to be confused, most likely, at the end of the sermon. So before you send me that email, before you ask me questions, make sure you read this book, okay? <laughs> this book is called The Unknown God, A Journey with Jesus from East to West. Now, this is published by David C. Cook. It's one of the largest publishers in the Christian world. They, they publish Francis Chan and Matt Chandler, big names. And, uh, and they took this, and I still remember the vice president of their public, publication division said, Matthew, man, I, you're a real bad bet because I don't have a Facebook I don't operate a Facebook account. I don't have Instagram accounts, and I'm not on social media. It's very difficult to promote books like that. But he said, man, I read your manuscript. I want my college age. He had two, two kids in the college. I want my kids to read it. And that's why I'm going to publish this book. So that ended up getting published. And uh, it is forwarded by Philip Yancey, some of you know, so at least his part would be worth reading. And Philip Yancey is known as the favorite author of Billy Graham. So, you know, so that, that's a good thing. So at least you won't be disappointed. Uh, so, but there is, it's not available outside in the lobby. We are not selling it, but it will be in Amazon. Uh, but the, the, the question it is trying to grapple with, it's a journey through uh, different religions in the world to, to discover the, 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 the revelation, God's revelation, how it is culminating in the person of Lord Jesus Christ. A very respectful uh, way of looking at world religions to arrive at Jesus as the only way. I just wanted to put that out there just in case that I leave you hanging at the end of the sermon. But we have a more important book to read, so would you stand with me for the reading of the word? Uh, we are going to read two... Um, Uh, scriptures today, passages today. 
John chapter 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now the next one is Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Have you ever heard the phrase, all religions are same? Right? Quite often, that's a statement made by people who have no understanding of what religion itself is. But it is a politically correct statement to ease the tension when we start discussing the things. Oh, all religions are the same. Let's all get along, right? Um, in fact, that is not true. All religions, not just Christianity, and as you read this, this couple verses we heard today, is what we call an exclusivistic claim of Christianity. There is no other way to God. There is no other name that we can worship. It's very clear cut. You know, I studied my seminary, I my, did my master's in theological studies in the University of Toronto, which is a very liberal institution. So I have all the liberal tools of explaining away the scripture in my arsenal, but there is no way you can explain away that because it's so clear cut. I wish it was not there. I wish somebody had edited it out, but it is there. You had to live with that, right? Now, it is quite often the Christian's particularly the evangelicals are who are blamed for being exclus exclusivistic in, in, their, in their arguments. But if you study world religions, all religions are exclusive at their theological center. Okay, let me read some verses from the Old Testament or the Jewish scripture, which is the Old Testament. So here are two verses for you. Exodus 23, you know that. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the Jewish God speaking. Of course, Christians claim that it is our God too, but the Jews don't think it is our God. It is God, Jehovah says, there is no, you shall have no other God before me. Then again, Isaiah 45, 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none but me, Jehovah, only Jehovah, right? Now, if you go to Quran, Surah 930 says, the Jews, the Jews call Ezra a son of Allah, and Christians call Christ the son of Allah. Allah's curse be on them, how they are deluded away from the truth. So the Jews and Christians are fundamentally wrong because Allah is the only God. And as Surah 572 says again, they do blaspheme who say Allah is Christ, the son of Mary. Allah will forbid, from, forbid him the garden and the fire will be his abode. Not only that Allah is the only God, but anybody who doesn't believe in it, particularly Christians and the Jews are and have deserve eternal damnation. 
Now then you say, what about this amazing Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism? They seem to be very, very universal kind of uh, uh, underlying tone. That's mainly because the old Eastern religions are, are revolving around a philosophy, what we call monistic pantheism. Okay? This is not a religion class, but monistic pantheism essentially is the belief that all is God and all is one. All is one, all is God. I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. All is one and all is God. Did you get it? <laughs> I'll give you five seconds. I, I'll give you five years. I, I'll give you five millennia. Nobody has ever gotten it. That's why it sounds so good. Because you and you and you, we are all one and we are all God. Sounds very good. It means nothing. That's why these religions are getting increasing popularity, particularly in the Western world, in the vague smoke we created called universalism, right? But the core of these religions, believe me, I'm coming from that part of the world, is very, very exclusive. That's why when Hindus and Buddhists, they come here, if they believe that all religions are one, all, all gods are the same, then why should we spend all this money to build these temples? They should go to a Christian church. When they go to Islamic country, they should go to a, a, a mosque and worship Allah because we are all one, right? But you, we all know this is, sounds good, but essentially all religions are fundamentally exclusive in their claim. And if you don't believe me, there is this Professor Stephen Prothero, uh, professor of uh, Boston University. He wrote a book called God is Not One. Here is a quote from this. The world's religious rivals do converge when it comes to ethics, but they diverge sharply on doctrine, ritual, experience, and law. These differences may not matter to mystics or philosophers, but they matter to ordinary religious people. Now, it's the biggest lie you hear when they say all religions are one. Spoken by a professor from, he's not Christian or anything like that, he's, a, he's an academic professor who studied eight religions and summed up in that book, God is not one, a good book to pick up if you are interested in scholarly research on religion. Now, as I said, Christian claim is exclusive to be clearly, Jesus clearly said, I am the way, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus' chief of staff, Peter, claimed very clearly that there is no other name. Right? How do we, how, how do we understand this? Now, this is where I want you to go back to my last week's sermon. The essence of last week's sermon was this. What happened on the cross? God balancing between the love of God and the law of God is inevitable for salvation. Cross is a mandatory event for salvation. The self-emptying God and sacrifice of God to balance between the law of God and the love of God is essential for salvation. I want you to picture that in your mind. 
Without that, when you, when you look at that balance, on one side, I want you to see a just judge, and on the other side, I want you to see a loving father standing. And this balancing happens only on the cross. Without the cross, without the self-emptying, self-sacrifice of God himself, salvation is not possible, irrespective of what you call that particular name. Any, any God, whether you call, you call that God Krishna, or whether you call that God Allah, or whether you call that God Tom or Frank, it doesn't matter. That God has to sacrifice himself to balance the, the, what happened on the cross, or what I call the Christ event, is inevitable for our salvation, without which the love of God and the love of God cannot come together. So this is the interesting point. So when you study world religions, one of the common link that connects all religions and cultures is the idea of sacrifice. In all religions, in all cultures, you see somehow people believe that under a tree, they go and sacrifice an animal and the, sh the blood will be shed and somehow that will appease the wrath of whatever deity they worship. Now this is the most common link between all cultures and all religions. There is this underlying assumption, uh, there, there is this universal recognition that a sacrifice is necessary for the atonement of sin. This is fascinating, but I'm coming from India, and one of the oldest sacred texts is what we call Vedas. Hinduism, the foundational text of Hinduism is Vedas. And Vedas says, the first Veda, Rig Veda, there are four Vedas anyway, it doesn't matter. The first Veda very clearly says that the world came into existence through the self-sacrifice of someone called Prajapati. Prajapati is the Lord of all creation. So the Lord of all creation, Prajapati, who is a primordial being, sacrificed himself and out of his body came all of us into existence. Now Prajapati sacrifice is some of the foundational assumptions of Hinduism. That's why what they call yajna or sacrifice is offered on a regular basis in Hinduism to remember the sacrifice of this Prajapati. Now interestingly, this Prajapati is half God and half man. And I'll read from the Vedas actually. So here is, you know, this, this comes from the Upanishads which are the commentaries of Veda. So here are some verses of Prajabadi sacrifice. The first one says, And indeed, there was no other victim for sacrifice but that one Prajabadi. They did offer up him. These were the first ordinances. Then another one says, Now one half of that Prajabadi was mortal and the other half immortal. There is some kind of secret code programmed into the depth of this Vedic text about some kind of primordial sacrifice that happened in a mythical cosmic realm. 
How does that happen? And if you go into the Chinese culture, and people from China know this, there is something called border sacrifice, which is offered by the emperor. In Chinese culture, God is less mentioned. They talk about heaven or Tian. So if you go to uh, Beijing, uh, there is a temple of heaven, and in that temple of heaven, there is an altar of heaven, and there is this deity called Shangdi, who is kind of a, that's only one of the, probably the only one temple you will see without any, any idols. Now, the, the ancient emperors, who are the mediators between heaven and earth, used to do something called border sacrifices. They will sacrifice an animal for the salve, for the atonement of the sins of the people. So there is this idea of a cosmic sacrifice is implanted into the very fabric of many cultures and many religions. It's fascinating. And in the Middle Eastern culture, as you know, and Judaism is foundational, the, the, Judaism has an elaborate system of sacrifices, right? There is guilt offering, there is peace offering, there is sin offering, and all of this will culminate in Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement where the priest will offer sacrifice for the whole nation. So what does it say? What does it say? I believe that somehow these could be, these border sacrifice or Prajapati sacrifice or, or Yom Kippur and whatever you see in the, in the very core of these religions, could there be some kind of a symbolic foreshadowing? Or there could be some kind of a precursor of a, an ultimate, a perfect sacrifice that is going to be offered in history one day. That would be a fascinating thought. And so you can look at world religions as, uh, you know, this is one way to look at world religions. This is what we call fulfillment theology. You don't have to go deep, deep into it. The, a good analogy to explain this would be, you know, at night when it's dark, then the moon rises and you enjoy the moonlight. Who doesn't love moonlight, right? The moon gives us natural light in the middle of the night. It is beautiful, it's romantic, it's mysterious. But we all know moon doesn't have its own light. It is actually reflecting the sunlight, right? Then the day comes, suddenly the sun rises. Sun rises with the brilliant light with intense light, with warm light, and the sun gives not just light, it also gives us life, right? Now the sun rises, then we don't really need moon, right? So the, ana the analogy is that all pre-Christian religions are, are somehow moonlight, which is actually reflecting the sunlight. They are reflecting somehow what we call a general revelation or common grace in Christian theology that they had this foreshadowing of something, a sun which is going to come up very soon, but here we are, moonlight. So we don't have to disrespect other religions. So this is what C.S. Lewis said. If you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all other religions are simply wrong, although, all through, there are other people who are being led by God's secret influence who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. Now that's almost borderline heresy, 
right? There could be people who belong to Christ without knowing Christ. What does that even mean? Man, if it was not C.S. Lewis, I would have questioned right away. But that damn <laughs> But think about it. Think about it. Let's take Abraham. Abraham. We, we are all sure that Abraham will be in heaven, right? Did he know Jesus? He didn't know about Jesus. He has never heard about Jesus or Christ. Or look at Moses. I'm sure he will be in heaven. And Hebrews chapter 11 to 11:26 says about Moses. This is what Hebrews says about Moses. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Wait a minute. Moses considered the reproach of who? Christ. Moses and Christ had no connection. They never met. But yet, we all know, this is, this, is, this is an easy sell to evangelical audience, we all know that all the Old Testament saints are justified through the salvation that Jesus offered on the cross and it was retroactively attributed to them because salvation has to be by balancing that, that, that balance, <laughs> the love of God and the, and the love of God. Right? That cosmic sacrifice had to be offered. That is the only way to solve divine dilemma. See, if salvation came through any other ways, then everything else, you know, then, then why should we all talk about Jesus anyway? Right? So we know that the Old Testament saints are saved through Christ without really knowing that they are saved through Christ, cognitively at least. Right? So the question is, what if my ancestors in India who lived 3,000 years ago, who never heard about Jesus, who, who died without ever knowing Jesus, but in their deepest, darkest moment, they knelt and they cried out to the Almighty God they knew, whatever they called him, Tom or Frank, I don't know, but they cried out for grace. What if what if God could have done the same thing for them? I don't know, but that's the, that's the point. So there could be, you know, anyone who has ever saved or anyone who will ever be saved, anyone who will ever be in heaven will be there only because of Jesus and his sacrifice. But some of them will be meeting him in heaven for the first time. For the first time, like, like Abraham. <laughs> And Moses and Abakira, good to meet you. You are Jesus. Very good. This is, the, okay. You know, you know what I mean? So there could be people in heaven saved through Christ without knowing Christ. Now, that's a complicated theology. It is the one way to look at it as an analogy would be, you know, if you take a patient to the hospital and emergency room, the, person, the patient is going to die and they need blood. So, you know, so... They got some blood and, and uh, tr did the blood transfusion and the patient, the patient survived. But now, the patient doesn't really know who's the donor of the blood. He doesn't necessarily have to know. But one day in a party, he meets this person who donated blood. Oh my goodness, you are the one who gave me blood. Which is a good knowledge that person have and that increases the intimacy, but that doesn't mean that the person was not saved before. 
right? Like, you know, you don't necessarily have to cognitively know who donated the blood as long as you are humble enough to receive that blood. Does that make sense? A little bit, right? <laughs> but this is what they say. This is, this is a very interesting theology. Karl Rahner, this is another famous theologian, Catholic nonetheless, he said this, Anonymous Christianity, he had this category called anonymous Christian. There will be Christians in heaven who never realized that they were Christians. That was his theology. They accepted the blood transfusion, but never cognitively knowing him because they cried out for grace in their desperate moment, right? Anonymous Christianity means that a person lives in the grace of God and attains salvation outside of explicitly constituted Christianity, if everyone depends upon Jesus Christ for salvation, and if at the same time I hold that many life live in the world who have not expressly recognized Jesus Christ, then there remains, in my opinion, nothing else but to take up this postulate of an anonymous Christianity. Now, I know this is all a little too much for you. That's why I said... If you have a chance, if you can spend $17, I guess, you can pick up this book and read a little bit about what we are talking about because this is going to be, like I said, it's one of the most pertinent questions you will have to answer in, the, in this coming age because in the era of multiculturalism and pluralism, we have uh, people from different countries and culture coming to this country, which is beautiful, beautiful thing. On one side, you can just say that Hindus are all pagan and Muslims are all terrorists, burn the Quran, and you can go in that route if you want to. But on the other side, you can say, it doesn't matter whether you're a Hindu or a Christian, we are all God's children, kumbaya. You can go that route too. But at some point, you have to hold this tension of how do we present Jesus as the only way to God because Jesus explicitly claimed that and and Peter asserted that in many other portion of the scripture is very, very adamant about the fact that Jesus is the only way. Because if there was any other way, that way would have been revealed at the garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus said, Jesus was basically asking, is there any other way? Well, Jesus didn't explicitly ask that. But garden of Gethsemane is that, can you take this cup away from me? which is really saying that, is there any other way to handle the salvation? No, there wasn't any other way. If there was any other way than Jesus and the cosmic sacrifice that happened on the cross, it would have been revealed then and there. So we believe in somehow, God has implanted a version of this, this, this myth of the cross in a way into, into different religions and different cultures, so that they will at least have some kind of partial access to the, uh, this, this greatest event that is going to happen in the history of the world. So C.S. Lewis goes again. Actually, one of the inspiration before for my book is, you know, another famous theologian, Karl Barth. Karl Barth is the church dogmatics, the next to the Bible, the most, you know, the most significant book in the evangelistic the evangelical theology. Karl Barth talked about God's strange voice outside the walls of Christianity. 
So this comes from the idea of general revelation and common grace. God might have spoken uh, in, you know, in, in other cultures, in other religions too. From there, I did a research on the sacred narratives. You know, God has implanted this idea of Christ into uh, what I call a Christ figure. Or Don Richardson, as you know, one of our missionaries, Steve Richardson, and you probably have heard about Peace Child. He calls it redemptive analogy. He goes to different culture and you see something very redemptive. God has already implanted in that culture. And you look at different religion, you already see some kind of a Christ figure, a savior figure who dies for other people, dies and resurrects for other people, implanted in that culture already. It cannot be accident. Maybe God has intentionally implanted that, giving them a window to what, window of what is to come. So C.S. Lewis was grappling with the same reality at the time of uh, Jesus and the first century Christianity. There is something called Terabolium where, where Romans offered sacrifices just like any other culture. And they believed in a God called Mitra, a God-man kind of. He sacrificed a bull and you probably heard about Mithraism was a main cult. And they will sacrifice a bull to remember what Mitra did for them. And they will do ceremonial bath in the blood of this bull. And they will cook sacred meals with, this, with the flesh. And they used it. It was very symbolic, very much like the baptism and Eucharist. So, and there is Egyptian cult there. You, you, under, you have this understanding of dying God and the resurrecting God. And then you, C.S. Lewis studied all of this. And he said this. He made this statement. We must not be nervous about parallels and pagan Christ. He called them pagan Christ. They are not real Christ, by the way. Real Christ is only in Christianity. These are shadows or Christ figures that might point to the real Christ. So he said, we must not be nervous about parallels and pagan Christ. They ought to be there in Christ, but whatever is true in all religions is consummated and perfected. All of these hidden revelations and the partial revelations were consummated in the person of Christ. That was his theory. And C.S. Lewis said again, the story of Christ, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with the tremendous difference that it really happened. The theory he postulates is all the pre-Christian religions are somehow mythical religion because there is no Prajapati who ever lived. It is, a, it is a fanciful narrative. It's a mythical narrative that came from the religious conscience of India. And this border sacrifice, the Chinese culture, they did, it, it, it never really consummated in the, as a historical reality. But in Jesus, he says, all this mythical version of this cosmic sacrifice were consummated and perfected. Or the cross of Jesus was the historical manifestation of the primordial truth God has implanted in every religion and in every culture. So how do, why should we speak? So if you are saying that somehow God has revealed this cross or the sacrifice in all other religions and, you know, there could be people who wouldn't be in heaven without consciously knowing Christ, then why should we even preach the gospel? That's a good question, right? Like, you know, that's a good question. The answer is to me is very simple. 
Luke chapter 2.10. You remember the angels who sang? That was the first proclamation of the gospel. The, the angels said, but the angels said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. So when I am sharing the gospel with somebody, what I'm presenting to them, I'm not giving them a truth claim. I'm not giving them some kind of intellectual reasoning about why my God is better than, than his God. But I'm telling them, here is the fulfillment of your own religious expectation, your own dreams. Here, I'm giving you the reality, the manifestation of the joy that you are dreaming about. Let me give you a quick illustration, a simple analogy. Think of a little kid. He is sleeping, and while he is sleeping, he is having a dream, okay? This kid is dreaming that there is a jar of chocolate in the kitchen counter, and in the dream, the kid goes and put his hands and grab, you know, packet full of chocolate, and he opens it, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, whatever chocolate is, and the kid is about to put that in his mouth, and suddenly mommy wakes him up. Hey, time for school, Tommy. Have you ever had that kind of, uh, you know, predicament? You know, you are, you're in a dream. You're having coffee with Tom Cruise. You're just about to jump off the plane and to do something mission impossible. Then you wake up, time to go to church. Man, <laughs> right? But imagine when this child wakes up, this mom, mommy wakes him up from the dream of eating this chocolate. The child wakes up to see his mommy has made a chocolate fountain for him in the kitchen. He sees this, this uh, four-tier chocolate fountain cascading marvel of rich, luscious, velvety chocolate flowing and at the bottom there is this assortment of, uh, uh, of strawberry and raspberry and uh, marshmallows or whatever you want to dip. See, see that is the reality of the dream to which that is Christ. Christ is the chocolate fountain. That is what the angels are singing. This joy that is for all people, it is not just for Jews, it is not just for Christians, it is for all people. This is the dream you were having as Prajapati sacrifice. This is the dream you were having as border sacrifice. That cosmic sacrifice has been materialized. Here is the fulfillment of your dream. Here is the joy that is manifested. Sun has risen. You don't need moonlight. Here it is. Sun is coming with warmth and joy and life. That is why Jesus is the only way. Let's say a quick prayer. Father God, Thank you for opening our eyes to see this precious truth. The chocolate fountain. The full manifestation of our hopes and dreams. Lord, thank you. Yes, glory. <laughs> thank you. And pray that we will not hold it as a secret for ourselves, but this joy will be contagious. This joy will flow out of the sanctuary to the street and from Pasadena to California to America and beyond. And that will be the true gospel so that 
the world will know Jesus is the, not just the way, but the only way. And he will satisfy all the spiritual craving this world needs. We, to this truth, we surrender ourselves. We dedicate ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.